This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily, World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNX Radio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. And we're here to talk about the coronavirus pandemic. President Trump pushing for schools to reopen their campuses when the new year starts. It's tricky, though. Complicated issue. There are concerns about the health of students and the staff. Also, daycare has got to be considered. CDC says it'll have some guidelines soon. But are those going to be enough to make sure everyone involved feels safe? Now, universities, colleges facing the same issues, we will look at how inequalities among them will play a role. We have talked about Sweden before. It's a I'd, European I'd like country. Perhaps you've heard of it. Yeah. I'd like to go there. Well, when they lift the uh, quarantine, you can't. Oh, okay. <laughs> it uh, did not have significant lockdowns to slow the virus spread. They did things differently. The country might now be regretting that move. So we're going to go to Sweden to find out how things are progressing. I actually was in, uh, uh, where was it, Malmo, Sweden, a few years ago. They have a great ice cream store. It has oh. nothing to do with the coronavirus, but... Thank God, but it, but the ice cream was good. It was a little diversion for all of us. Yeah, just just in case you go, <laughs> just so you know. The absence of sports has led to a lot of ripple effects economically. We'll go into sports, money, and the pandemic. We start, though, with schools returning or not returning. Margaret Spellings, president and CEO of the advocacy nonprofit Texas 2036, former education secretary under President George W. Bush. So, Margaret, this is a tough one. It's complicated, no doubt about it, and there's lots of moving parts here. And I think, you know, parents really appreciate the complexity and the and the lack of certainty, but they also want to know that school folks and teachers and policymakers are thinking about contingencies, thinking about variables, and doing everything we can to get our schools opened safe as safely as possible. Nothing is risk-free in this world because we must get our schools and our students back learning productively or we, this generation will suffer mightily. Where do you think we put the emphasis, though? Because I think some people just follow on the track of, you know, one poll question, and then they, they forget to look at the, the next. The first is parents polling say, yes, kids need to go back for all these reasons. But you can't ignore the follow-up, which is the very next question that says, if it is safe. And a lot of them feel it's not safe yet. Well, we are going to do everything we can, and of course, this is what local school administrators and policymakers are wrangling through. How do you do that? Uh, how do you test? How do you make sure everyone wears a mask? How do you configure classrooms uh, with as much social distancing? How do you close class cafeterias and have students eating lunch? How do you, you know, protect the workforce that is our education uh, uh, workforce, our teachers and the like? It, is, it, it can be done. It is complicated, and it will require a lot of flexibility and a lot of cooperation from all of us, including and especially our, our students. And then you have this dilemma, Margaret, which is you've got the president today threatening that if schools don't reopen, the White House may withhold some federal funds. But I thought that that longtime Republican orthodoxy was that schools ought to be left in the hands of, of locals to control. So why the, the intervention of the feds? Well, I, I think the president rightly uh, knows that how integrated the functioning of our schools is with the functioning of our economy and our families. Mom and dad can't work when junior is home, you know, not learning and bugging them to death and whatnot. But I will say that 
uh, moms and dads also know that, that education is a state and local responsibility. Ninety-plus percent of the resources come from state and local taxpayers. And frankly, it's a hollow threat. Uh, the president has no authority to take resources that have been appropriated by the Congress or our schools. And by the way, they're a minority investor. And even if you tried, do you lose more people than you gain doing that? Because then you have parents saying, look, we're trying to do our best here, but now the school and maybe our local council or our governor, whoever it was, made the decision that they just can't go yet. Well, exactly. And by the way, uh, you know, the costs of, of attending school are going up because we will have to mask students. We'll have to have fewer people congregated. We'll uh, have to protect our teachers and then do testing and on and on. So, uh, we're grateful that the CARES Act funding did provide resources to do some of these things. In my own state of Texas, those are being made available at no charge to schools. Um, but there are issues like hotspots and broadband uh, ubiquity and all those sorts of things as well. So uh, it's going to take a lot of flexibility, a lot of creativity, and an understanding of the complexity of things. And above all, we have to communicate, communicate, communicate with our parents and families so they are read in and can make decisions uh, for themselves. But I think, I think parents and schools will have options. Some of them will be online. They're not optimal, but, um, you know, better than nothing. <laughs> yeah, best we can do, right? Margaret Spellings, President and CEO, Advocacy Nonprofit, Texas 2036. Harvard says it is going online this fall with all of its classes as a way to prevent the spread of the virus on campus. But Harvard has... <laughs> Lots of money with its forty billion dollar forty billion forty billion dollar endowment. That's a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. What about the smaller schools, though, and uh, students where they don't come from wealthy families? With us to talk about this, Tressie McMillan Cotton, sociologist at the University of North Carolina. So, Professor, you want to expand for us on how the uh, smaller colleges are going to be impacted by this because it's a, it's a whole different ball game for them. Listen, we spend a lot of our uh, attention uh, budget on places like Harvard, Yale, Princeton, and the like, and sometimes for good reason. But in this moment, I think our takeaway from Harvard's decision to move to online uh, in the fall is not really about Harvard. It is about who can afford to put their students' well-being ahead of tuition revenue. And now the reality is, is that there is a vast amount of inequality between institutions, as you pointed out. The institutions that actually transform people's lives, that actually make the economic engine of our public life go, are actually not those elite, mostly private schools. They're the public schools. You know, they're the minority-serving institutions, the community colleges, for goodness sake. Those institutions don't have the kind of wealth and political capital to put their students' health and well-being ahead of tuition revenue. And that's not entirely their fault. You know, for the past 30 years, the push from political leaders, from the public, has been for colleges to operate more like businesses, right, to raise money directly from tuition-paying students and families in lieu of getting money from state budgets and appropriations. In this crisis, what that means, though, is that whatever the students want, right, those institutions that need that tuition revenue are obligated to give the students what they want. And sometimes what the students want are at odds with what's good for public health. 
we need everyone to stay home, to self-isolate, right? We need to be really cautious about reopening. But when you need the tuition dollars because the state doesn't fund you the way it once did, then you're more likely to make decisions that aren't always best for student health and well-being. Yeah, and we know what the state budgets are going to look like after this anyways, right? So we don't know that all that funding is coming. So they're just under that much more pressure to do all this. And then maybe even if I'm an independent school, but I'm still operating like a small to medium-sized business, I'm still under the same Mm -hmm. pressure too, right? Because I've got to make some money in this and bring you all back to campus because that's what you expect me to do. That's exactly right. That is what the students expect them to do. And it's what things like boards of trustees, donors, the business class who donate to universities, that's what they expect to have happen. So there are a lot of incentives on the institutions who are sort of living and dying based on consumer demand and consumer preferences, when right now what we really need is a more collective response. That's what the sort of public health crisis necessitates. And if you need the tuition revenue just to get from semester to semester, by the way, there are a lot of institutions uh, that would like to be able to make different decisions come fall, but if they don't have a fall semester, they may not exist in the spring. So, and that's that's the reality. So if you if you were uh, you know think back to the days when you were a student, if you were a student now, uh, mm-hmm. and and you're faced with a an interesting dilemma come fall. I mean, your college mm-hmm. say is is going to have classes not online, but but there, and you're kind of thinking, well, I don't know. It sounds kind of dangerous to sit there in a in a classroom. What should I do? Mm-hmm. If you were that student, what would you do? Oh, that is a that is a tough question. Uh, And I wish that we had more and better guidance, um, both from public health officials and government and leadership. As the student, as someone who has family members, by the way, who are students, and we're having these conversations in our home just like other people are, I am saying colleges will exist in some form or fashion next year or in five years. But if your health is gone, you may not be able to take advantage of going to college. We have chosen for those of us, for those students in my family, we have chosen for them to go online where they can. Uh, If they had not been able to go online, we were thinking very seriously about them sitting the year out and doing some other educational experience. But here's the thing. We can kind of, you know, we have the benefit of making some of those choices. For some students, if they sit out a year, they may not be able to come back. And for that student, I say going online is probably the best option. If you have to do a sort of staggered return to school, to do so, but weigh that against your responsibilities to your family members, to yourself, and your own individual health. Tressie McMillan-Cotton, sociologist at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Thanks so much. Sweden stood alone among big European countries, refusing to impose strict lockdown measures. Now it... Well, it might be second-guessing that decision. It has more deaths than its Scandinavian neighbors and its economy. Well, it hasn't exactly flourished in this pandemic, even though many businesses remained open. So how are things going now, and how's the public feel? Marta Paterlini, investigative science journalist to cell molecular biologist working in Stockholm, Sweden. So, Marta, what's going on there? Was staying open a mistake? I think... Things didn't go well, actually, which is true. Um, but I don't think I read the article in the New York Times. I don't think uh, there was the intention of an open uh, experiment in Sweden. 
I think the idea was to, uh, from the public agency of health, was to mitigate the curve as all the other countries, trying to keep the economy going on. But actually it turned out not this way, uh, because suites, even if the, we were able to go around and shop, uh, stopped spending money, really. <laughs> so there was a decrease of shopping, for example, which is true. Um, restaurants and pubs are open. They never closed. But there was a moment where they were empty. Now they are full again, actually. But So I think the economy didn't go well as expected. And maybe that's sort of an interesting point here, because we looked up some figures, and what I wanted to do is to make it a kind of fair comparison, is not compare Sweden to the United States, but to compare Sweden to Los Angeles County, because we're, we're talking to you from the uh, city of Los Angeles, which is within, <clears throat> excuse me, the county of Los Angeles, and both L.A. County and Sweden have roughly a 10 million population. So they're, they're somewhat, yes. somewhat equivalent. So looking at those figures, Sweden has had over 73,000 confirmed cases. L.A. Yes. County has had over 120,000 confirmed cases. Sweden has had over 5,000 confirmed deaths. Los Angeles County, over 3,500 confirmed deaths. So roughly equivalent. Uh, and so that raises the question that Sweden, which didn't have a, a, a real lockdown, as you were just pointing out, people were free to do what they wanted and businesses were open. And Los Angeles County, which still is uh, in the middle of a modified lockdown, but we had a much stronger one for about uh, two months or so, we yes. kind of ended up with roughly the same numbers. And it's interesting. Uh, I don't know. I'm originally from Italy. Um, I moved 20 years ago. So, but I was following, for example, Lombardy, which is the epicenter of, of um, the pandemics in Europe, has the same number as Sweden, 10 million Lombardy. And um, Sweden was much worse than Lombardy, is much worse than Lombardy. I think that what went wrong in Sweden was the, the public agency, uh, which was r ruling the strategy, wasn't able to transmit the, trans the, the perception of risk among Swedish people. It's kind of the same thing we've actually heard here, at least from some people who are trying to analyze what happened in California. They said, you know, New York got really scared because New York had a huge surge and they had hospitals, you know, that were filled up. But California never did, so we weren't as afraid. Yes. I mean, here, like, the, the hospital situations were was pretty much... Uh, there was a, a big stress at some point around April, which was the worst uh, moment. But it's true that it was never beyond control. I must say that um, they admitted to the hospitals only very severe cases. So a lot of people, and I know them directly, they were like very sick, but they were not enough sick to be admitted. Um, Sweden went to phase two without 
having really a phase one. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> at some point, people just went out more. Difficult to remember that there is a pandemic sometimes, I must say. Kind of. Well, I mean, since the pandemic is, is certainly far from over, is, is Sweden rethinking the way it is handling it? Is there any serious thought about doing things more along the lines of your neighboring Scandinavian countries, Denmark, uh, Norway? Um, or is the attitude, let's just keep going the way we're going? Anders Tegnell, at some point a few weeks ago, who is the face and the brain of the strategy, the epidemiologist of the, uh, kind of said that if he knew before uh, more about this virus, maybe you'd have taken more restrictive measures earlier, said that he also claimed that the strategy is still fine. But a big change happened uh, in the middle of June when they decided to test, to give, it, to give the opportunity to, to, the, to the Stockholm people, just the inhabitants of Stockholm, where is the epicenter in Sweden, to test for free, which was a big change because up to uh, the beginning of June, they were testing only people admitted to the hospital. From the, since uh, the 15th of June, um, everybody in Stockholm can get tested for both PCR for the, to see if the, if, if the, the, the virus is, is acting or the, to measure the antibodies if you have it in the past. And this was a big, uh, I think, was a big change in the strategy. And I think it's because they want to see how this virus is moving in Sweden, in Stockholm, because um, I think at around May, they surprisingly discovered that only 7%, 5-7% of people in Stockholm were positive. They would expect it around 20%. So that was a big surprise in a negative way. So the government decided to test. It's a massive response right now. The first day, you could, you could sign in through an app. The first day, there were like 60,000 people asking for two. So it's, it's going on. And uh, I think it will be very interesting to see the numbers. Uh, the numbers now, I think, physiologically will be, be growing because, because they test more. Marta Ponterlini, Italian investigative science journalist, living there in Stockholm, Sweden. The lack of sports around the country hitting communities big and small real hard. Many rely on the events for jobs and to bring in money to local businesses. We're starting to see how important sports are to the country beyond providing entertainment to fans. Villanova University business professor David Fiorenza talks to KYW's Matt Leon about the business of sports and what he's keeping an eye on right now. Well, some of the things I'm actually keeping an eye on is not just the local town economics that happens when you have colleges playing and even minor leagues and high schools, but on the professional level, it has to do with the TV revenues. It has with the ad revenues, and then subsequently the tax revenues of all the players and everything 
at a at a stadium, whether it's football, basketball, baseball, or hockey, there's lots of tax revenues that are being paid to the local city, and everything from parking tax revenues to wage taxes to taxes on the on the merchandise that's being purchased. So I'm taking a look at this and saying, without professional sports, there's a big multiplier effect that is not happening in the United States at this time. And even if we get sports back, we're not going to have fans. So, yes, the players will make money. The teams will make money from the the TV revenue. But really, all those other things you talked about are really going to take a hit or disappear for the time being, no? Right. They've already disappeared, and a lot of people are employed in the state of Pennsylvania and throughout the country when it comes to sports and anything involved with, with sports. Uh, some of those jobs are secondhand jobs for people, first-time jobs for people just coming out of high school, let's say, part-time jobs, parking cars, selling merchandise at the stadiums. This has a multiplier effect of even selling the merchandise when our favorite team is winning, going to the local um, sporting goods store, or even going online to buy a T-shirt or a jersey, let's say, from the of the Eagles or the Phillies. When we have sports, it actually brings us – the ability to have a lot of confidence in our teams, especially if they're winning, and we go out and we spend money, whether it's at a bar, a restaurant, whether we have Super Bowl parties, let's say, or whether we have NCAA Final Four parties. I used to work in State College, and I know what Penn State football means to that community from a social pride standpoint. But from an economic standpoint, the engine that makes that town run really is seven Saturdays in the fall. What would towns like State College have to deal with if they have a fall with no football or football but no one can go to the games? Well, that brings up a great point because all the restaurants up there, all the hotels up there will not be filled. They'll be at 10% capacity, maybe 15% capacity, uh, and that's some tax revenue that's lost for the towns. I was on a virtual call this week with lots of finance directors throughout the state of Pennsylvania, and they had concerns in Pittsburgh, State College, the Philadelphia area, and the surrounding areas, not just the, the college teams, but even the minor league teams where we've built some great minor league baseball stadiums. Penn State lives for those seven weekends a year because the people start going up there on a Thursday and leave on a Sunday. It's a ritual uh, that happens every year. And I'm telling you, if this doesn't happen, there's going to be a loss of tax revenue, not only for the borough of State College, but also for the state of Pennsylvania. And these towns are trying to manage their budgets going forward. And I mean, we're not just talking about business closes. You talk about tax revenue. I mean, the ripple effect of the possibility of no football for one season or no fans. I mean, it's really kind of hard to get your head around what that would mean for like the borough of state college, isn't it? Oh, it is. It just to imagine that some of the monies that come in the borough is able to do lots of improvements through the town, whether that means new streetlights, sidewalks, and even maintaining services for the people that live up there in their parks and recreation areas, as well as public safety, uh, storm sewers, everything up there. Those Saturday Saturdays a year for those games, when you have at least a hundred thousand people up there, and not to mention all all the people that work there and all the people that are coming in from out of town from this from the teams like Michigan. In fact, I think even Villanova is supposed to play Penn State maybe this year or next year uh, as an away game for Villanova. So 
we're not going to we're not going to be able to go up there. We have, may have to watch it on television. Is it really hard to get a handle on the effect of like what not having a season will do to unemployment? Because for a lot of the people, it might be a, a second or third job working at the stadium or, or working to, to, to cover a team. So, yes, the person might not be unemployed, but they're taking a giant hit because a, a, a section of their, of their wages aren't coming in. That's right. Tr- traditionally, stadiums in Philadelphia area, but even throughout the country, uh, when games would start at 7.05, people would wor- work part-time. Uh, in these blue-collar cities, the husband would come home after work traditionally, take care of the children, and the wife would be the ones going out. I used to see all these uh, great workers at the at the Wells Fargo Center at the Citizens Bank Park who would seat me for my games, and they relied on that little bit of income, even if it was 15000 a year, let's say, even 10000 They relied on that second income to buy their Christmas gifts. Uh, to be able to do shopping, maybe take the children out once in a while for a pizza or, or, a, or a movie. So if we don't see the secondary employment happening, not only at the stadiums, but even at, at the local hotels. People like to travel. They like to go see their, oppose, their teams play in opposing cities, and they like to stay for two or three days. Well, there's that multiplier effect again happening with food vendors, hotels, even airlines, gasoline. And it all comes back to if you're not spending the money, then the tax revenue is not coming in as well. Doctors and researchers have been trying to figure out the primary reasons for the recent surge of coronavirus cases. It turns out there is a correlation with restaurants. A new study from J.P. Morgan found the level of spending in restaurants three weeks ago was the strongest predictor of the rise in new virus cases over the same period. The study also found that consumer spending at supermarkets showed a lower rate of new COVID-19 cases, which could mean high levels of supermarket spending are indicative of more careful social distancing in a state. The study admits other factors can drive the spread of the virus, but it says the data indicates a relationship between economic activity and the virus spread. Thank you for listening. Keep on doing it. Stay healthy. Listen to us on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. You remember that, you know the ice cream store I mentioned? I was just thinking about yeah, it still. that I had in, in Malmo, Sweden. <laughs> uh, if anyone goes in, I wish I could remember the name, but the, the vanilla chocolate chip grape. <laughs> just great. Noted. Noted.